Welcome to BNN News. It's Thursday, July 14th, 2022. I'm Faith Mafadon. Thanks for tuning in. Boston Tuesday, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and Project Bread held a district convening on food insecurity. The listening session brought together local leaders, community members, and advocates in three panels to find solutions to the growing problem of hunger in Massachusetts and beyond. The convening comes at the request of the White House in preparation for its conference on hunger later this year. During the pandemic, Massachusetts households struggling with food insecurity more than doubled, from 8.2% to 19.6%. And these rates are rising in households with children and BIPOC families. The issue of hunger and food insecurity is 100% solvable. Uh, today we heard from uh, individuals and families directly impacted uh, by this crisis, and we're able to provide um, a more inclusive a narrative and picture of just who is uh, food insecure and hungry. And the answer is people from every walk of life, uh, people that are employed, people that are unemployed, uh, elders on fixed income, uh, children, uh, people who find themselves uh, struggling with hunger and food insecurity for the first time because of disruptive life events, um, a layoff, a death in the family, illness, divorce. So again, this is a, a transcendent issue uh, that is hurting people across the board. No child in Massachusetts or the United States of America should worry about accessing food at school. We need to make food as part of the school day. That's an obvious solution. And the second one I would point to is that, as the Congresswoman said, we need to address nutrition as part of health care. Food is part of healthcare. What you put in your bodies is part of healthcare. And today we heard a lot of solutions specifically on how to do that. There was a lot of discussion about how do we leverage Medicaid and Medicare to integrate food insecurity as part of our overall healthcare systems. I think the goal for the government should be to eliminate food insecurity altogether. Altogether. There should be no poverty in this country, and we can afford to not have poverty in this country given the amount of wealth we have. So. Ultimately, we need to work on the economic inequity that's at the heart of food insecurity. If that means creating livable wages for people, if that means creating upward mobility, economic mobility for people, that's what we need to do. $20 million is on the way to expand early education for Boston's UPK, Universal Pre-K Program, a partnership between Boston Public Schools and the Office of Early Childhood. Mayor Wu announced the investment on Wednesday, July 6th, which brings the city closer to realizing high-quality education and care for all children under the age of five. Plans include increasing support for community-based classrooms, making more seats available for three- and four-year-olds, and incorporating family child care providers into the UPK system. The number of early education centers serving children under the age of five in Boston has fallen as the challenges of running our child care centers have become more intense and, and disrupted by the, the many stressors from this pandemic. Geographically, too, this has exacerbated inequities and some of the neighborhoods with the greatest number of young children have seen the greatest decline in available pre-K and early education seats. That's why I'm so excited here today in one of our first announcements with our new Office of Early Childhood and some of our city's strongest advocates for accessible quality childcare to announce a $20 million investment 
in early childhood education through the Boston Public Schools and the Boston UPK program and our early childhood office. Today we're reaffirming Boston's commitment to becoming the most family-friendly city in the country. This investment will expand our UPK program to include nearly a thousand seats for three and four-year-olds. Additionally, it will introduce a new, more effective financial model for grant funding and incorporate family child care providers into this network for the first time. Not only are we creating more seats for both three and four-year-olds across the city, but this is a model for the early education sector. The commitment that Boston is making to include a funding formula that provides additional stability for our community-based partners. And as we continue to develop a true, high-quality, mixed delivery system, this investment allows us to sustain the equitable salaries that our UPK community educators both need and deserve. And the BPS Early Childhood Department, alongside our UPK providers and our families, will continue to lead the way in developing curriculum that is available to all of our educators. The universal pre-K funding will provide additional support that will enable more families to access free high-quality child care in the city. So it means more access for three-year-olds to access high-quality care and additional four-year-olds as well. This will take um, relieve a huge financial burden for our families of young children. It also allows for our teachers in those UPK classrooms to be paid a more livable wage, which is exactly what we need to reduce teacher turnover and keep amazing teachers in the classroom. Currently, Boston UPK is accepting applications for pre-K seats at community-based providers for the upcoming 2022-2023 year. More information is available at www.bostonpublicschools.org forward slash UPK. Last week, Kelly had the pleasure of chatting with Harry Harding, the Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at Children's Services of Roxbury, a social services nonprofit that serves more than 6,000 children and families across Massachusetts annually. On top of his work at CSR, Harry also runs a consulting business and produces a radio show right here at BNN. Harry's doing incredible work in the city of Boston. Enjoy the interview. Well, Harry, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate you coming into BNN News. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So let's start with what your role is with uh, Roxbury Children's Services. So it's, it's Children's Services of Roxbury. You are, won't be the last person to say that. It happens all the time. Got it. <laughs> um, but so my role is I have a really obnoxious title. Okay? okay. So it's Vice President of Innovation and Strategic Partnerships. Okay. Right? What does that mean? Um, exactly. What does that mean? Yeah. Um, keeping it real simple, I help build capacity and build relationships. Right. So that's both helping the organization think about how we do programming better, how we serve families better, um, and then how we serve the staff better. It's kind of all those things because they're that's all good. they're all interconnected, right? Um, so that's one part of my job, and then the other part of my job is helping build relationships outside of the organization. Mm. So a lot of times. Um, It'll be, you know, meeting with other community organizations. It could be being part of boards, membership. Um, it can be, again, just attending on behalf of the agency as an ambassador. So it's a number of those things. But the, the ultimate, you know, purpose of my job is to make Children's Services of Roxbury a better functioning program that serves families the best that it can. And so forget my title, forget all that. Mm. Like, that's ultimately what I do um, and what I'm committed to. Children's Services of Roxbury, why does it exist? How yeah. was it founded? Great, great question. So 
Children's Services of Roxbury has been around for 50 years, believe it or not. Um, this is actually, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary this Yay. year. Um, and it starts and it ends with the founders who are Reverend Richardson, Rich, Richard Richardson and his wife Justina. Um, stalwarts in the faith-based community in Boston. Um, Reverend Richardson and his wife started Children's Services of Roxbury um, out of their home in Tewksbury. And it started um, really as them trying to find better support for foster care children, mm. particularly foster care children of color. Um, they recognized that there was this gap, this discrepancy between um, what they were, services they were getting and what they needed. And so they started their own foster care in their, in their basement home. Um, and what's amazing about that is they fought, just alone, they have fostered more than 50 children. I think it's, I think it's somewhere around more like 75 children wow. on their own. But, you know, that just tells you, again, the, where our organization was founded from, from that level of care and right. that level of, um, you know, commitment to the community and the children and the families. And so I always like to start with that story because if you know nothing else about us, knowing how we started kind of mm. gives you a sense of, you know, who we are. Um, so that was 50 years ago. And since then, we've only continued to grow. Uh, so now Children's Services of Roxbury has more than just foster care. Uh, we have uh, a large housing and stabilization program. So families come to us that are underhoused or need, in need of emergency housing. Um, so we have shelter programming for that. Uh, we also have a large early education and care component. So we have um, about 100 families that receive daycare services from us, so babies all the way up to age five. Uh -huh. um, and then we have a youth development division. So we, we, we love our babies, and then we have our, our little older babies, right? Our teenagers <laughs> and so forth. Um, we have programming for them as well, um, after-school programming and another other resources for them. And then we have a large, our largest program right now is uh, our behavioral health program. Um, so we serve about 1,000 or so families in that program alone. Um, and, you know, mental health is crucial, supporting mental health support. And so um, that part of our programming is a major, major part of what we do. And so, you know, as you can see, there's a number of ways in which we serve families. Right. Um, and so it creates a lot of complexity and it creates a lot of good things as well. Um, um, but it's a lot to, to, uh, to manage. And so, again, my, my role is you know, kind of helping think through all those different things. So yeah. I'm, I'm pretty lucky. I get to, uh, uh, I, I, years ago I worked in the field mm -hmm. and I was doing the work. Now I get to be an executive with a kooky title and uh, <laughs> get to help support others who are doing the day-to-day -day work in the, in the field. And so, you know, I'm pretty privileged, but it's also, I, I, um, I'm happy to be where I am now. It's but, really, really important work that Boston needs and Roxbury needs, and you serve all over Massachusetts? All over Massachusetts, yeah. It's a little misleading because we are Church and Services of Roxbury. Right. And that's where our headquarters is. Right. We're on Dudley Street. Um, and he, the audience might be familiar with Ideal Sub Shop, which... There we go. Exactly. <laughs> uh, be a community treasure, right? Yep. And so we're like neighbors. We, we, we're right next to them. And so, um, but we serve more than just Roxbury in Boston. We have uh, geographical locations in Tewksbury. Um, where I mentioned that's where Reverend mm. Richardson's home was in Worcester and then also in Northampton. Wow. So we literally are entire, across the entire Commonwealth. That's super helpful for everyone. Um, so the summer's kicking off. Yeah. And I'm sure there's some programming that you've got going on for the summer. Absolutely. So, you know, our, years, our services are all year round, all of the course. ones I mentioned, right? But in the summer in particular, one, our youth development programming really uh, takes it up a notch. Uh, so one of our youth development programs is called Youth Police and Partnership, mm. uh, YPP for, for short. And YPP has been around really 25 years, almost half of the times 
that Children's Services of Roxbury has been around, we've had this program. Um, and YPP was started in the 1990s at a time where there was a lot of youth violence, gang mm -hmm. violence was, was, pretty, um, was pretty significant in the city. Um, and not unlike today, there was a tension between the community and law enforcement. And so this program was started as a way to bridge that gap, you know, build better relationships between youth and police uh, and law enforcement in general. Um, and we continue to do that. Uh, the ways in which we do that are vary, but I would say the, the primary ways which we, is we, we talk to one another. We have dialogues. Uh, the young people facilitate dialogues with law enforcement present, mm. uh, and law enforcement uh, also has dialogues exchanged with our young people. And through those dialogues, they, can, they talk about things that matter, like community issues, violence, mm. um, police, um, community policing, um, other things that, you know, teenage pregnancy, things that right. help, you know, think about all the different issues that our young people are dealing with. Um, so that's one component, a major component. Yeah. And then the other piece of it, though, is it's youth development, right? So skill development. Right. And it's a leadership development program. And so we often, you know, these are a lot of times, these are our first, the young people's first experience in work and employment. Big deal. So we, yeah, so we give them tools, right? So whether it be how to write a resume, how to interview, um, those people call them soft skills, which I, right. I do not like that those term. They're not soft to me. Uh, they're not <laughs> soft and they're, they're critical and crucial. Um, they're just as important as hard skills, as they say. But in any case, that's what we all hope to do as well. With young people 14 to 18 are, is our core group mm -hmm. in this, in this uh, youth development program. And they come to us in all sorts of, you know, with all sorts of skills and all sorts of right. uh, talents. And part of our role in the, in the development piece is to help them hone that, help them ex discover those, those things. Um, and so we have a number of components in the program in which we, we teach them skills um, and we invite them to learn different skills. Um, just the last thing I'll say about that, because it's, yeah. it's really important to, to, to note this, um, we're growing uh, in terms of our philosophy and our, and our programmatic uh, uh, offering. And so again, we, we, we focus a lot on dialogues and workshops and things like that, but we're really trying to get the young people to activate their voice mm. and also um, link to what is again, the future of communication and digital media, right? And so for instance, last year, we had our young people produce their own podcast. They took a six week course in podcasting, right? Love it. So part of it is giving them an opportunity to sort of, again, share their voice, activate their voice, discover their voice. Um, but then also give them more towards those tangible, harder skills, mm -hmm. if you want to call them that, um, that will benefit them in a career in the future, right? So whether it's podcasting, whether it's digital storytelling on social media, through photography, through video production, whatever the case is, we want to get them uh, um, more acclimated to the future right. industries that are going to be driving our country and giving them an opportunity to get a, like a in there in the first floor, right? right. So that they can be you know, viable, they can take care of themselves, they can take care of their own families with tangible skills, yes. right? So, um, you know, I get a chance, again, I, I, my job here is to like, be on this platform and talk about it, right. but you know, the, the real credit goes to the staff and the young people themselves who are, you know, doing it. We started our summer program today, as a matter of fact. Oh, good. Um, and we'll have about 30 young people this summer, um, you know, going on this journey with us. and. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really powerful and it's exciting. And I'm, I just, again, I'm, I'm happy to be in the role that I am, which is sitting up and uh, supporting in the way that I can and uh, getting to promote it on this show like with you. If people want to learn more about Children's Services of Roxbury or any of the other things we talked about yeah. today, uh, where can 
more information be found? Yeah, so you can always go to the website for Children's Services of Roxbury at www.csrox.org. X is an x-ray, csrox.org. Um, you can find out all about the different programs, uh, Rocks Talks, um, all the things we talked about today. Um, if you want to find out more about my leadership consulting practice, that's at leaderfullife.org. Again, leaderful is uh, leaderful, leaderful, F-U-L-L. Okay. So leaderfullife.org. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming in today and oh, taking time it. for this. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you <laughs> for having me. I hope you'll come back sometime, too. I hope you have me. Thank you so much. We'll hear you on the radio. We'll hear me on the radio. I'm actually right. going to record right now. There we go. <laughs> for being in News, I'm Kelly Ransom. Broadway Capital, you can hide. We, we can, can see your greedy side. Enough is enough for Chelsea and East Boston residents who marched for rent control early morning on July 8th. Members of the Chelsea and East Boston Tenant Associations spoke out against corporate landlords, Broadway Capital, and grid management. Their complaint? That the real estate giants have raised rents to upwards of $600 post-pandemic, issued no-fault evictions, and have failed to address bad living conditions. Boston has reached a fever pitch in the affordable housing crisis. A predominant Latin community, residents feel they are being forced out of their homes with no viable options. And it's unfair that these uh, you know, real estate giants are just buying up buildings that families are currently living, have called home for more than 10 years, and pushing them farther and farther from the city. It's wrong to price people out and to just place this value on people's lives and whether they should stay in their homes if they can afford or if they can't afford to stay here. This is playing like monopoly with people's lives and families that are in need of homes. These corporate giants like Broadway Capital and others are deciding to just push us out because our dollar bills are not as equal as the blue collar or the higher class working man. Uh, we're living in unjust conditions. Tenants are calling for the state to lift the ban on rent control in order to protect the working class. The ban went into effect in 1995. And now to continue the conversation on housing, our next interview is with Chris Norris, who has served as the executive director of Metro Housing Boston since 2007. With a staff of 250 and a $21 million operating budget, Metro Housing Boston connects residents of Greater Boston with safe, decent homes they can afford, emergency housing assistant payments, and administers more than 9,500 rental assistant vouchers. I had the opportunity of chatting with Mr. Norris about the organization and his goal of codifying the Massachusetts Rental Voucher Program. So I am here with Chris Norris, CEO of Metro Housing Boston. Thank you so much for being here with us today. You're welcome, Faith. Nice to see you. So Metro Housing Boston, it's a new name for an organization that's been around for a very long time. Uh, can you share more about what Metro Housing does, how it came to be, and the changes that have been made since its 2017 evolution? Sure, of course. Um, we were founded almost 40 years ago by a gentleman named Bill Edgerly, who was the CEO of State Street Corporation at the time. And um, Bill had a vision of working to preserve subsidized housing that was at risk of being lost and foreclosed on. And there was a relatively new program at the time called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program. And so he got um, together a variety of different folks from the business world 
who invested and purchased low-income housing tax credits. And the money that they used to purchase that was treated as equity that was used by local community development corporations to preserve about 1,200 units of affordable housing. And the organization that Bill founded was called the Boston Housing Partnership, BHP, which was the organization that um, worked with the community development corporations to provide the technical assistance to allow for that work to take place. And and what has been your role there uh, during this time? Sure. I'm the executive director. I started in 2007. Next month um, will be my 15th anniversary at um, Metro. And over time, you know, we really have come into expanding our services, such as fair housing or additional housing supports. We're no longer in the real estate business. We actually don't own, operate, or develop housing any longer. In fact, all of that housing that was preserved is now owned at the local level by those very same CDCs. And instead, we focus our work on working with 10,000 families who have um, rental assistance vouchers. And then we work with um, another 15,000 or so families annually to provide support services. We know that the voucher is often just the very first step, but once someone is in a home, they may have a challenge with a landlord. They may lose a job. They may have questions about utilities. Any number of things that come up for all of us um, daily in terms of our housing. And so we have branched out over time to expand our support services to keep people stably housed once they are housed. Um, In fact, over the last two years, we saw with the pandemic um, some dramatic growth. We had 150 employees when you know the pandemic started in March of 2020, and today we have 265. That is a, a very a big growth of the company. <laughs> All right, so that's incredible. So over 25,000 families being served by the organization. And uh, what types of programs do you do you offer? Sure, sure. We work in 32 cities and towns, including Boston. We provide the rental assistance that I was talking about, administering vouchers, both um, state vouchers and federal vouchers. We provide cash assistance. That's where much of the growth has happened over the last two years, using some of those federal funds that were provided to keep people stably housed when they were impacted by the pandemic. And then we also have um, general supports, like I was talking about relative to um, any number of situations that folks might run into. And then we work with families who are currently homeless but looking for housing. So we'll work with them to provide housing search. We will work with them to um, make sure their materials are all in order so that they're able, if or when, you know, they are able to secure housing, that they have everything they need to move forward and um, become stably housed. Uh, and I saw that you actually had an op-ed that was published on July 8th in Commonwealth Magazine. Congrats. Thank um, you. In it, you share some very uh, startling statistics. You mentioned that one in four renters, they pay over half of their income to rent. Uh, so what are some of the, the factors that are contributing to the skyrocketing costs in rent in Massachusetts right now? Sure, I would think um, there's two, and one of is obviously common economics, which is high demand and too little supply particularly for the families that we work with who are often among those with the lowest incomes in the state. Um, Our families um, 
are often working, you know, part-time jobs or um, low-wage jobs. But on average, a household of three that we work with has an annual income of $15,000. And we're not building housing <laughs> that families can afford for $15,000 annually when that's their total income. Um, and so obviously, demand and too little supply is driving up costs for everyone. The other thing is, you know, we work with 4,300 property owners, and we couldn't do our work without them, and costs for owners are going up, just like everything else. So um, just maintaining the property itself is costing more for those owners who then have to raise the rents to account for what they are experiencing in terms of the outflow of cash uh, managing the building. So I would say it's those two. It's high demand, too little supply, and inflation, and the costs generally that are being experienced by owners. Uh, so everyone essentially is being impacted by this. And in your article as well, you talk about how the state um, should codify the Massachusetts Rental Voucher Program for stabilizing housing costs. Can you talk more about what MRVP is and why it's important that uh, Massachusetts makes this a, a law before the end of this legislative session? Sure. I was really happy to be joined by Rachel Heller, who's the CEO of CHAPA, Citizens Housing and Planning Association, as well as a much larger group that is calling for Mass Rental Voucher Program to be codified. MRVP is the state voucher program. It's similar to Section 8. The voucher pays a portion of the rent and the tenants pay 30, 40 percent of their income toward rent. And it allows for the lowest income households in particular to be able to afford housing given this market. Um, they pay a percentage, the voucher covers the balance. And one of the reasons to codify it is that although Massachusetts was one of the first and still one of very few states to have a state voucher program, it's not written in law. So there is no predictability or consistency. The program um, can change a every year. Um, it's not guaranteed. And um, the requirements for it can change every year. And um, there are often discussions um, about the line item and the language in the budget. And it would just be really effective and helpful to have some predictability and to know that the program was enshrined in state law like so many of our other important programs that we have. Is there any reason why it hasn't been done up until this point? I think it just hasn't um, been a top priority, the codification side of it, but the pandemic raised new emphasis on housing. We saw whether it was housing for elders or housing for families or housing for individuals, we saw what the social determinants of health were around house, having stable housing. And we felt that this gave us an opportunity to step forward to um, call again to have the program codified. So what will it take to codify MRVP into law? And is there anything that Boston residents can do to help? Sure, of course. The um, agreement from the legislature is key. The legislation is drafted. The legislation was um, reported favorably by the Housing Committee. It just needs to rise toward the top of the priority list for legislators, legislators before the end of the formal sessions um, at the end of July. And the 
primary piece, I know it can seem trite at times, but the primary way people can help is to contact their elected officials, contact your state representative, contact your state senator, contact your city councilor and ask them to contact the elected officials and to explain how important this program is for residents of Boston. All right. So we still have a couple of weeks until the end of this month. So anything is possible. So here's to it becoming law, being codified. Uh, but for our individuals who want to learn more about Metro Housing Boston, um, how, how can they do so? Yes, that's um, easy. One is uh, to visit our website, which is metrohousingboston.org. It's in a very simple format, question and answer if you need assistance or if you want more information for owners, for residents. It's all available there. And for folks who need assistance directly, they're welcome to call us or email us. Um, the number for our housing hub is 617-425-6700. Or people can reach us online by emailing us at resourceline, one word, at metrohousingboston.org. All right. So plenty of great information there. We got Chris Norris, Executive Director of Metro Housing Boston. Once again, thank you so much for being here today. That's all for today, Boston. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Faith Maffedon with BNN News. I'll see you Monday.